Hi, everyone. Happy Saturday. This is Charles W. Chuck Bryant here. Hope you slept well. Hope you're feeling good because you're about to listen to How the Scientific Method Works. This is from January of 2015. And boy, this was a good one. I really loved it uh, because we love science around here and we love the scientific method and proving stuff out. So check it out right now. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry. Stuff You Should Know. Why are you grinning? It's been a while, man. I know. It's funny, like those words just come pouring out of my mouth, and, and it's cool. You wake up in the middle of the night saying that, and Yumi like slugs you in the face. <laughs> right. She's like, go back to sleep. <laughs> she has to dry my brow. Yes, we pre-recorded some for December, uh, as we like to do, to take a little time off at the end of the year and not explain things for a few weeks in our real lives. Nice. Like, people ask me things like... Uh, what happened to that stick of butter? Yeah, I don't know. Don't ask. Don't even ask me. I could tell you, Yeah. but I'm not gonna. Exactly. That's how it goes in my house. Find your own butter. <laughs> right. December was find your own butter month. Yeah. That's a good, that's, that's a good one. That should be a t-shirt. For yeah. Us. Stuff you should know. Find your own butter. Or December's Find Your Own Butter Month. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe a stick of butter with some garland on it. Yeah. I like that. So, uh, it's good to see you again, man. Good to be back in here. Yeah, it is nice to be back, isn't As it? much as the break was great, I'm happy to be explaining things again. Well, that's good, because if we got in here and you're like, I can't do this, I can't do it again. Yeah, we'd be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm glad we're all feeling good. Jerry, you feeling good? Jerry's got two thumbs up and a big, goofy wow. smile. Yeah. Two of her three thumbs. She looks like Bob from that uh, male enhancement pill ad. Oh, is he the guy, the old man that's like super buff? I would call him old. He was middle-aged. He looked like a, kind of a Bob Dobbs typey dude. I think that's kind of who he was modeled but after. Is he the guy that's super muscly now? I'm thinking of someone different, I think. You're thinking of Jack LaLanne. No, 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 no. Just there's some ad. There's some old man that looks like really creepy because from the neck down. Because he's super like buff? He looks like a 25-year-old. No, remember there was like a, a male enhancement pill. And I'm making air quotes here. For erectile dysfunction. Oh, well, there go the air quotes. <laughs> but yes. Uh, and it was like in the early 2000s, I think. Uh-huh. Maybe late 90s, but I think early 2000s. And these ads were everywhere and there was bob and like all these great things happened to him because he started taking really? this pill i can't remember the name of the pill but the company like got into a lot of trouble because it was basically like a subscription service uh. and like you gave him your credit card and you got this free trial but then they started sending it to you and it was like next to impossible to cut off service interesting they were like no we want your maleness to be enhanced so you, you've seen okay. these ads. Yeah, I was going to start asking questions, but it, it, why? Why bother? I will, fi- I, will f- uh, YouTube, I will find it on YouTube. I'll be like, oh, Bob. Yeah, you will. You'll yeah. go, oh, and we'll have to come back in and record an insert. Right. The guy that's on the back of all those pill bottles in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chuck. Yes. I don't even remember how we got. Oh, yeah, Jerry did that. Mm-hmm. That was Jerry's fault. But um, you remember we did the Enlightenment episode? Yeah. Okay. We talked a lot about how there's this kind of um, uh, tug of war over the human psyche, sure, between rationalism and mysticism. I guess you could you could put it. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're we're talking today about the scientific method. Yeah, great idea, by the way. Thank you very much. Kudos. It's been a long time coming. Yeah. Um, because I realized, like, I I. I don't understand it as fully as I don't understand science. I understand the scientific method because it's pretty cut and dry and it's beautiful and elegant and simple. But then you just take this thing and it it came out of the birth of rationalism. And when you place it into the world and make it function, there's a lot of implications. Is it being used properly? Is it being used responsibly? Like, are we putting what constitutes faith into that? You know, like it just raises all this other stuff. And it made me realize like, I, I don't understand science as much as I want to. So researching this, it was awesome. Yeah, and this is a cool episode, I think, because not only are we going to talk about the scientific method, but we're going to talk about just science, like what is science in general, and some of the uh, rock stars along the way who really you know, laid out the path remarkably in like many, many years ago, right. like coming up with these amazing discoveries that yeah. still like hold 
you know, you can like hold their feet to the fire for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, because if you come upon a universal truth, yeah. You know, it is what it is. Like you got to be the person who discovered it because you know, yeah. you saw it, you realized it a certain way, but Ultimately, it was there already. Yeah, like Newton. I mean, we'll talk about all this stuff, but it's not like now we're like, oh, Newton, most of what he said was wrong, but that's understandable because it was a long time ago. Like, his stuff holds up yeah. really, really well. I was wondering if he on his deathbed was just like, oh, man, I contributed so much to yeah. humanity. It's mind-boggling. But I couldn't enhance my malehood. <laughs> well, Bob hadn't come <laughs> along yet. So, Chuck, let's, let's just quit stalling and talk about science. <laughs> Like, what is science? Well, I hate the, the old elementary school uh, defined as, but it's a pretty good place to start here to get a base definition of science. Yeah, old William Harris did a great job with this. Yes, William Harris did a great job on yeah, this. Yeah, he did. Uh, science, the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experimentation. Boom, end of podcast. Uh, so the first part of that is science is practical. And it is, you know, they make a good, he makes, uh, Bill Harris makes a great point in here. It's not just stuff you do in a lab and it's not just for scientists. It is all about being hands-on and active and it's all about discovery and asking questions about, I mean, that's how everything is ultimately solved is by someone looking at something and having a question about it. Exactly. And then the scientific method comes in when you say, and this is how you properly get to that answer. Exactly. Um, and he makes another good point, too, that the, the idea that there is a method, a scientific method, makes it seem like it's, it's secreted away among right. the, the fraternity of scientists. And like you said, any, anybody can use it. It's just kind of part of being a curious human. Is, it's is not science. even anyone can use it. Everyone does use it. Nice. You just might not even know that you're using it. Like if you, I mean, one of the examples they use later is if like your car overheats. Right. When you figure out why and fix it, that's the scientific method. Right. Playing out. Exactly. Based on reasoning. Yeah. Okay. And deduction and induction. Right. Man, there's so much to talk about. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that definition that you had. So the first part is, is that science is, it's a practical activity. So science is practical, right? Yeah. It's, it's this, um... The basis of the whole thing is discovery, right? You see something, you see birds in flight, and you say, where are those birds going? And if you just went and laid down on the ground and went to sleep after that, then you're not, <laughs> you're not carrying out science. But if you went, I want to find out where those birds are going, and you follow them, and you start taking notes, that's, that is the basis of science. It's discovery. Yeah, and that's the observational part as well. Um, Sometimes you're using a microscope or a telescope. Sometimes you're using your eyeballs. But no matter what your tool is, uh, you're going to be watching something and recording uh, what's called data or data, depending on, I don't know, what kind of person you are. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say? Mm. I think I say both. It I think just I comes say data. Data? Yeah. I don't, think I've, I don't think I say data. Okay. Data. I say data. Data? Yeah. All right. We'll go with data. You say both? I feel like it just comes out of my mouth one way or the other, and I don't really think about it. I think that's like being ambidextrous. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a data datist. Yeah. Uh, so once you are observing uh, this data, well, there are a couple of kinds. There's quantitative data, uh, which are numbers, like you know, your body temperature is 98.6, although I think that's changed slightly now, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there, it used to be like higher. if you were a human being, your body temperature is 98.6, and they right. realize like, no, there's a little more variation than that. Yeah, but any kind of just uh, numerical representation is quantitative, uh, whereas qualitative is uh, behavioral. Like I'm going to watch that bird um, eat and poop for the next week. Right, or what happens if I, what will the slug do if I put a bunch of salt on it? <laughs> Don't, you know, don't do that. No, you really should not do that. No, that's awful. But the reaction of the slug is gathering qualitative data. And depending on who you talk to, there isn't qualitative data in science that it should all just be quantitative because what? yeah, because quantitative data is reproducible. Qualitative data is it's not necessarily reproducible. You can observe the same phenomenon, but you're not necessarily controlling it. Okay, well, I guess I get that, but I, I agree with Bill here in that they are both, they go hand in hand. Yeah. 
and neither one is more important than the other. You need to have both. Well, a lot of people do, and we'll talk more about it later, because without the idea that qualitative data is acceptable and scientific, you don't have the social, social sciences. Like, they don't exist. Yeah, that's a good point. You know? But yes, we have quantitative data and qualitative data. I agree with you. They're both useful. Okay. Uh, it is an intellectual pursuit. Um, so you can make observations on data all day long, but until you bring reason, in this case inductive reasoning, which is uh, deriving a generalization based on your observations, then it's just data sitting there on a piece of paper. Like it's supposed to lead you somewhere. Right, exactly. And so we should talk about inductive and deductive reasoning. In, it depending, again, it's really weird. One of the things I came across is that there's not a universal agreement on how science is carried out. Like, sure. not, I saw some places where there's like, there's no place for inductive reasoning in science. Then other places are saying, well, you have to have science using inductive reasoning. Everybody seems to agree that deductive reasoning is the basis of science. Right. But that you also have to have inductive. So deductive is basically taking a big, broad generalization yeah. and saying that it applies to something. Specific, more specific. Yes. Yeah. Uh, inductive is the opposite, where you say, uh, I've noticed these different data points. Yeah. And uh, that means that this broad generalization is true. Right. So you go from specific, small yeah. observations, to a broad generalization. And the reason that a lot of people say, well, inductive reasoning doesn't have any place in science is because you're saying those birds over there are all brown. Therefore, yeah. all birds of that type are brown. Even though I haven't seen every single bird of that type in the world, right. I'm saying that all those birds are, are brown. And a lot of people say, there's no place for that in science. Well, if you want to go out and prove that then, that's your business, you know? You can't just say that and be like, and I'm done. Right, exactly. I guess you could, but you no. wouldn't be much of a scientist. Right, but the, the, you can use it to formulate hy hypotheses. Sure. Right? So you can say, I've generated all these data points. I'm going to put them together and see if this broad generalization is true. Right. Okay. So there is a place for inductive reasoning science, but everybody says deductive reasoning is the basis of science. Well, uh, Bill Harris does, uh, he offers a great example for inductive reasoning uh, with Edwin Hubble of the Hubble telescope. Uh, he was uh, looking through the Hooker telescope, which at the time at uh, California's Mount Wilson. Is that the one from Rebel Without a Cause? No, that's um, Griffith Park Observatory, oh. which has been redesigned and uh, is really cool now. Is it? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of cool before, but it was definitely like uh, sort of the space museum that time forgot. Oh, really? <laughs> so they've updated it. I'll bet that was cool, though, in its own way. Yeah, it was neat. I used to live near there, so it was kind of... But that's like the famous one, at least in the movies. Yeah, it's where they have the big knife fight. Yeah. And there's this James Dean statue there, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Like a bust. Neat. Um, so, yes, Edwin Hubble. He's at uh, Mount Wilson, and he's looking through the Hooker Telescope, which was the biggest one. And at the time, everyone said, the Milky Way galaxy is it. That's what we've got going on. Yeah, did you know this? Uh, yeah, I knew that. Because we're talking 1919. Yeah, not did, that long ago. Did not realize this. And he started looking through this telescope and said, you know what? These nebula that everyone says are part of our galaxy look to me like they're beyond our galaxy. Mm -hmm. And not only that, they look like they're moving away from us. So he made this, uh, with, through inductive reasoning, made this observation that, you know what? I think there are many, many galaxies out there. And not only that, I think they are expanding. Yeah. And uh, through technological advancement with telescopes over the years, scientists, you know, it proved to be true. Yeah, pretty cool. So this is a really good example of him saying, like, I've made some observations, and now I'm going to say this broad generalization. Yeah. Right? So these these galaxies appear to be moving away from another. So the whole universe yeah. is expanding, right? That's inductive reasoning. Yeah, it's a pretty brave thing, uh, Especially back then, because you're really putting your reputation at stake. It really is, you know. So what Hubble was, what Hubble did was, what we've come to see as science. He made some observations. He came up with a, a hypothesis, um, and then it, it was tested later on. It's not you don't necessarily 
as a scientist, you're a part of a larger collective of scientists. Yes. Right? And every scientist needs one another. It's why there's journals and, and um, conferences and things like that to share information, right? Yeah, and to party. Right, and to party. <laughs> and, and Hubble came up with his own observations. And rather than just experimenting and experimenting and experimenting himself, which I'm sure he continued to do, sure. he created this basis of work that he probably realized is going to survive him. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then later on, scientists came down the road and they tested his hypothesis and they found it was correct. And so his hypothesis became a theory. It eventually became part of the basis of the Big Bang Theory, that the universe started as a huge explosion and it's expanding still because we're because it exploded at one point, right? Yeah. And they, they did that by carrying out other tests or experiments exactly yeah so this is how science works like some guy back in in 1919 makes some observations in california in 1925 he proposes this big broad general generalization yeah and over the next like ensuing half a century more and more scientists all around the world start testing his hypothesis and find it to be true so it becomes a theory yeah well well, let's finish up here with science. Okay. Uh, the last part of the the definition is that it's systematic and it's methodical and it requires testing and experiments mm-hmm. and it requires those experiments and tests uh, to be repeated and verified and it is, is it's a system, it's a way of working things out. It's a way of working and yeah. that is the scientific method basically. Yeah. You have your idea, you you pose a question, you theorize a hype or you put a hypothesis out there and then you go about trying to either prove it or disprove it. Yeah, exactly. And then the way that you go about proving or disproving it, that's the scientific method. That's Everything right. else is just scientific inquiry. The way you go about the standardized way of going about scientific inquiry is the scientific method. And we, friend, will talk about the scientific method right after this. All right, you brought up a point I think we should go ahead and just get right to, my friend. Let's do it. Hypotheses and theories. One no, thing tough to say together. I know. You did it, though. One thing that really chafes my hide is uh, when you hear poo-pooers of whatever scientific theory say, well, it's just a theory. Yeah. And you d- where was this thing that you found that poo-pooed that? Do you remember what website that was? <sighs> no. No. Although I do want to give a shout out now that you mentioned it to Explorables. Yeah. It's like an online university, basically, of free courses. And uh, there is one on scientific reasoning that is just amazing. It's like a huge rabbit hole. You go down, you start clicking on the embedded links, and you end up like understanding all sorts of stuff. So go check that one out. If you like understanding stuff. Right. (laughs) So that's one of the things that bug me if someone says it's just a theory. And this does a great job of kind of throwing that out the window um, because it's basically mixing up the two definitions of theory. Yeah, there's like a colloquial definition that people use every day that doesn't really have much to do with the scientific use of it. Like I got a theory that uh, Jerry and her one-hour bathroom breaks every day is really playing uh, words with friends. Oh. In the lobby. I think your theory is correct. So that's a theory in the colloquial meaning. Right. As far as science goes, a theory is not just something you postulate, say, this may or may not be true. A theory is beyond the hypothesis, and it's something that is strongly supported in many different uh, ways. And all there's all kinds of evidence to support something that eventually becomes a theory. Right. So... um what you your theory about Jerry's bathroom breaks? Yeah, in the scientific world would be a Fact. hypothesis. Oh. <laughs> what? Fact? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, it'd be a scientific law. Yeah. But uh, it ultimately would begin as a hypothesis, a hunch, uh, based on intuition, based on 
data you've collected, observations, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where, like, you know, you've seen that Jerry goes to the bathroom for, like, an hour to stretch. Yeah. Frequently, when she comes back, she's um, finishing up a game of Words with Friends. Sure. Uh, you've heard that she's been spotted in the lobby during these times. Yeah. So your hypothesis is that while she is gone for these hour-long bathroom breaks, she's actually down in the lobby playing Words with Friends, right? Yeah, based on knowledge, observation, and logic. Right. So let's say that you decided to set up an experiment, and you experimented, and you went, and you found Jerry playing Words with Friends yeah. five different times, and you told me about it. Right. And I was like, I'm going to run that same experiment exactly the way you did. Yeah. Right? I would test that same hypothesis. If I found the same results to be true, then what you would have come up with, your hypothesis, would move to basically a theory. Yeah. That is this widely accepted thing, this explanation that Jerry is not actually in the bathroom. She's downstairs playing with friends. It'd be the Jerry bathroom break theory. <laughs> That's right. And then if it turns out that you find that Jerry spending an hour a day pretending to be in the bathroom, mm -hmm. but actually being downstairs playing words with friends, yeah. If the universe couldn't exist without her doing that every day, yeah. you would have a scientific law. That's right. Yeah. I think that was a good example you came up with. Well, that's a great example, as it turns out. Uh, I guess the point here is when you hear someone say in an argument, well, that's just a theory, just uh, punch them in the head <laughs> and then tell them what we just said about yeah. the bathroom breaks. Yeah. And they'll say, who's Jerry? Or just, just queue up. That, that whole bit and stand outside of their window wearing a trench coat and holding a boombox <laughs> over your head with the smug look on your face. Uh, all right, so should we go back in, in the old Wayback Machine a little bit and just talk a little bit about how the scientific method came to be? Yes. Man, this, this thing... What are you running this on these days? Is what do you mean? It's a straight kerosene? <laughs> the fumes in here are killing me. Sorry about that. I'm trying to go green, you know. Kerosene is not green. Well, diesel, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> I'm choking. Biodiesel, how about that? Okay. The Wayback Machine will run on French fry grease. That would be fine. All right, I'll, be, I'll, can, I'll get to work on that. I could handle those fumes. So uh, you, you teased us with the Renaissance, and the reason the Renaissance was so awesome and necessary was because of... Something else we've talked about, which was the Dark Ages, uh, when... Which, remember, that's a rationalist's uh, disparaging term for this era. That's right. Uh, but I think sort of rightfully so. <laughs> okay. Because right before the Dark Ages, until about a century after, there was not much advancement at all in the realm of scientific advancement. Uh, no, it's, it's true. That's hard yeah. to argue with that. And, and the reason why is, again... Science wasn't really born yet, and there is a huge struggle between rationalism and mysticism, and uh, ultimately we're living in the age of rationalism now. Yeah, and we should point out, too, that this was mainly in Europe. Uh, over in the Islamic world, as I think we had a listener mail point out, mm -hmm. there were a lot of advancements being made, right. uh, just sort of flying under the European radar at the time, because uh, some say the Catholic Church kind of kept science under its thumb for a while. Yeah. And well, it was said, a pretty big threat. <laughs> yeah. And said, you know, you can't do this stuff. You can't experiment like this and don't ask these questions. Right. Because here are your answers. Yeah. But eventually the Renaissance came about in the 12th century and uh, people woke up and saw some of the work in the Islamic world and said, you know what? Maybe let's start reading up on Aristotle and Ptolemy and Euclid once again. Yeah. They're like, we forgot about these guys. Yeah. I mean, it literally kind of vanished for a while. It did from the West. Yes. Fortunately, it was still around, you know, in, in its home places. But yes, in the West, they were lost. The Roman stuff was almost entirely lost because it was being suppressed by the locals. And I think the Greek knowledge was completely banished. Yes. Somehow, time. somehow they got it. There was some, um, we got another listener mail after the Enlightenment one. They said that it was a, a an Islamic scholar who was the one who translated Aristotle oh, right. into Latin or something like wow. that. And that without this guy, like the West wouldn't have had much to start with because that's where that birth of rationalism came from, was this rediscovery of uh, Greek and Roman classical thought. Yeah. 
And this is the basis of scientific inquiry, of rationalism, of saying like, okay, there's, there's set rules to things and we need to discover these rules and how the, the principles of how the universe works. Like there has to be principles and we need to find this in a rational, methodical way. Yeah. And right out of the gate, Europe said, oh, okay, well, whatever you say is right then, Aristotle. Right. <laughs> We're used to just believing everything without questioning it. Yeah. And luckily, Albert Magnus, I think, is who it was. Um, Albertus. Was it Albertus Magnus yeah. or Roger Bacon who said, no, it was Bacon. Roger Bacon, who just has this great name, Raj Bacon. The Bacon brothers? Yeah. He Francis said, and Roger? Right. Well, they I, weren't brothers, though. But the, were they related at all? You know, I looked that up, and... I don't think people know either way. I don't think there's any proof, but yeah. a lot of people think because of their names and the way things went back then that they may very well have been related. Yeah. And I mean they were separated by 300 or so years. Although Roger was a was a monk, so he would not have had children. So if they were oh, related, it's it an w- excellent point. It wasn't necessarily through his line. Gotcha. You know. Yeah. Could have been a nephew or something. Yeah. Or his brother Kevin might have had <laughs> the the line that matched. So Roger was the one who said, uh, everybody, stop. Just because Aristotle wrote something doesn't mean it's fact, especially when we find contradictions to it. Yeah. It doesn't, Aristotle's not automatically right. And this was a huge advancement. Yeah, and uh, Albertus Magnus was the one, I believe, who said, uh, you know, this thing called revealed truth, which is basically God says this instead of a truth found by experimenting. Right. Is... Maybe we should experiment instead and not take this revealed truth as the truth. Right. And we mentioned in the uh, Enlightenment episode as well about scholasticism, about using scientific inquiry to explain theology. Right. Which was, you know, you're still working from a theological standpoint, right. but you're starting to use scientific inquiry and the, the idea that you shouldn't just accept things as truth. That was, again, a huge, huge breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, Francis Bacon, the other Bacon brother. He, he's one of the heroes of this story. Yeah, he was an attorney and philosopher. And, and basi- possibly Shakespeare. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I never heard that. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So, r- what do you mean? Like, wrote those under the, a pseudonym? Yeah. Huh. And they're, the Shakespeare sister was the other theory, too, right? That it was a woman? I've heard that, yeah. And she couldn't, like, you know, women couldn't be the playwright, so... Her, Plus, her dumb brother William. That's t- a good t- credit. Uh, was it her brother? I think that was one of the theories. Huh. This is a good uh, Smith song too. Uh, Shakespeare's sister mm-hmm. was that the name of it? Yeah. Wasn't it a band too? I think it was. Was it? Maybe. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> he was an, a, a philosopher and a lawyer, and he said, "You know what? The Baconian method basically became the scientific method." Yeah. He was the first dude who really said this is how the steps that you should take to uh, investigate science. Right. There has to be a framework. And the whole point of this, that we take this so for granted now because it's so intuitively and um, on its face right Yeah, as far as scientific inquiry goes. But this is an enormous breakthrough to say, follow this step, these steps, this framework. And if everybody who carries out science, follows the same framework, then science will be universal and interchangeable. And anyone in the world, and not just now, but anytime, yeah. will be able to carry out the same experiment and will be able to verify or disprove it. Yeah, And that is amazing that that happened. That's why Francis Bacon is one of the heroes of the story. And he didn't come up with this entirely on his own, but he no. was the one who said... This is what we're going to do. I'm going to give it a name. I'm going to spell it out. And from now on, you can call me the dad of the scientific method. Yeah, and that's why Newton was such a rock star because he so rigorously stuck to the scientific method Mm -hmm. that all these centuries later, his, uh, you know, his systems of laws are, they have stood the test of time. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a good point to bring up too that the collaboration of scientists is really the hallmark of advancement and moving forward. Right. It's not working in a vacuum. It's sharing your ideas and working with one another. And the whole uh, little sidebar here on cell theory I thought was pretty cool, uh, which was when science quit 
or not quit, but started looking at small things instead of looking at the universe around them and, and the, at the stars. Right. And uh, said basically, you know, through the advancement of lens grinding, Antonio van uh, Leeuwenhoek, specifically a Dutch tradesman, was pretty good at making simple microscopes. And all of a sudden, contemporaries like Robert Hooke said, you know what, let's start looking at tiny things. Right. Because therein might lie the answer to many, many things. Yeah. And, and they were uh, right. Robert Hooke found cork, or he, he discovered cells by looking at cork yeah. through an early microscope. So in this story, science is hastened by technological advancement, lens grinding, yeah. to make microscopes, and then this new technology is used to further science, right? Yeah, it's like mutual inspiration between Leeuwenhoek and Hooke. Leeuwenhoek. Yeah, it was Hook. neat, because Hooke heard about Leeuwenhoek's microscopes, yeah. got his hands on one, or a microscope, looked at them, a cork, and said, oh, there's such a thing as cells. Right. Leeuwenhoek said, oh, that's pretty neat. Let me try. And he said, oh, there's such a thing as, quote, little animals, right. which we call protozoan bacteria. Yeah. And uh, one of the royal societies, after Leeuwenhoek presented his findings, turned back to Hook and said, hey, Hook, we know you're pretty handy with the microscope. Yeah. Can you confirm Leeuwenhoek's uh, findings? Are there little animals? <laughs> Hook said, there are indeed. I can see them with my microscope. That's right. And that inspired a German botanist named uh, Matthias Schleiden uh, to look at a lot of plants. And he was the first guy to say, you know what? Plants are composed of cells. And he was having dinner one night with his zoologist buddy. Yeah, and this is about 100 years later. Yeah, Theodore Schwann. And said, you know what, dude, uh, order the wine and order the steak. Trust me, because this place is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, also, plants are made of cells. Don't tell anyone. And he went, you know what, dude, I have been investigating animals with microscopes, and they're made of cells too. And so they figured out at this dinner yeah. that everything is made of cells. All living things are made of cells. Boom. Okay, so this is huge. This is a big advancement, right, yeah. that we're, we're hitting upon right now. Huge. But it f laid the further foundation, right? Yes. So initial scientific inquiry led to further scientific inquiry and further scientific conclusions and generalizations. Yep. All living things are made of cells. And then it was extrapolated elsewhere, right? Yeah, like 20 years later, Rudolf uh, Virchow said, you know what, not only is everything made of living cells – but they all come from pre-existing cells, which was a huge deal at the time because people believed in spontaneous generation yeah. at the time. Like if you left some um, wheat seed in a sweaty shirt, it would spawn <laughs> mice, I think, was one of them. Gross. There's a lot of weird ones. Press basil between some bricks and you'll get a scorpion was one. Like they were really out there. Yeah, well, the one that is, well, not true, but the one that you could actually see was... Rotten meat would eventually uh, spawn maggots. Right. How did they possibly get there? Yeah. Spontaneous generation. But That's the obvious explanation. And, and yeah. if you think about it, they're working from Occam's razor. And Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is usually the the right one. Yeah. All, all other things given. Well, the thing is, is spontaneous generation has never been shown to be possible. Right. If we've got the cell thing over here, let's investigate that. Yeah. So... This, uh, what was the guy's name, Virchow? Yes. He's saying, okay, well, wait a minute. I've got this, this cell theory I'm working on that's been around for a couple of decades. Cell hypothesis, probably. A cell hypothesis at the point. Nice catch. Don't man. feel bad, though, because this article that you sent said that scientists today, like, still, like, confuse those terms. Yeah. Just it, colloquially. And the, uh, the How Stuff Works article makes a good point in saying that science and everything that has to do with it is in the scientific method is very fluid yeah, yeah. and open to interpretation and, sure. and experimentation, yeah. obviously. But so he says, um, okay, this cell hypothesis, this is a pretty good ex explanation for what we now call spontaneous generation. He didn't do anything about it. He just put it out there. Yeah. And then along comes Louis Pasteur, who does do something about it. He figures out a great experiment to try to disprove spontaneous generation. Yeah, it's pretty simple, too. Um, he basically took a broth, uh, put equal amounts in two different uh, beakers. One had a straight neck and one had an S-shaped neck. He boiled it just to make sure everything in it was killed yeah. and then just let it sit there in the same conditions, open to the, to the world. 
and uh, or open to the room, like it wasn't corked, in other words. <laughs> no cork. <laughs> and he noticed that the one with the straight neck eventually became cloudy and discolored, uh, meaning there was some junk growing in there. Yeah. And the one in the S-shaped neck did not do anything. It remained the same. Right. So, so that led him to think what? Well, he thought that germs, that there were such things as germs, which um, Leaving Hoke and Hook had already shown. Yeah. Um, and that if that in the S-shaped flask, they had gotten trapped in the neck. Mm-hmm. In this, the open neck, they had been able to just enter unobstructed right. and had uh, generated there. The reason that the S-shaped flask was still sterile was because there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. If there were, then no S-shaped neck would impede anything like that. And boom, there you have it. So he disproved that spontaneous generation is a thing, right? That's right, through the scientific method. Exactly. Here's the leap that a lot of people make, scientists included, that really is a great disservice to science. He didn't prove cell theory. Right. What he did was take that cell hypothesis and present some really uh, persuasive evidence that it's probably right. Yeah, but like this article you sent points out, disproving something is just as important as proving something. So here's the thing. That's the most you can hope for with science is disproving. Sure. With science, unless you're talking about math, with science, there's no such thing as proof. A theory, even a law, a universal law, still has the potential for being undermined by one single experiment, one single observation. Right. And therefore, there is no real ultimate proof in science. There's just theories and support for theories. Right. And then ultimately, laws aim further and further support for laws. Right. Right? But they're not proven. What science does ultimately is disprove things or lend support for existing theories or existing interpretations of why things happen the way they do. Yeah. And that's what Pasteur did. So if you look at that experiment, he disproved spontaneous generation, but he lent support to the cell theory. And probably with his experiment, it went from the cell hypothesis to the cell theory. Right. Because it was just so persuasive. And that's what a theory is. It means that a lot of people out there who are reasonable say... This explanation is probably the right one. Yeah, it's predictive. If you do it over and over, you're probably going to get the same result. Right. But that's not to say that Pasteur showed that if you do this a million and one times, right. that it, the S-shaped flask won't turn cloudy. Yeah. He didn't prove that. You, you can't prove that, which is, again, science can disprove and lend support. Can't prove. Very good point. So uh, right after this message break, we're going to get into the actual steps of the scientific method. All right, dude. I guess at long last we're there. Uh, Like you mentioned before, the scientific method is fluid, and it's not like when you get your science degree, they hand you a little laminated card, <laughs> yeah. like the Miranda rights that cops carry, right. that you know list out all the different steps you have to take. Um, but generally, oh, uh, maybe, yeah, I would. I we should carry those around. Right. We should make little wallet cards of the scientific method just to carry with uh, the stuff you should know logo on it. Oh yeah, we'll make a million bucks. We could brand them and sell them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, generally speaking, though, it, it follows these steps. Uh, the first thing you do, like we mentioned earlier, is you observe something, you ask a question. Uh, next, like Darwin was known, I think when we did our podcast on him, to you would spend like a week on three square feet of ground oh, on his property. It was like even longer than that. Remember? Yeah, remember it was, wasn't it? He said that he didn't, he wasn't going to mow his lawn for like three years because yeah. he wanted to see what <laughs> what happened. Yeah, so he, he's the ultimate in qualitative data of just observing, writing things down, and asking questions. And the reason you ask your question is so you can narrow something down. Uh, like the, I think the example they use in here is on Galapagos, like the beaks of, uh, what bird was it? The finches. Yeah, the finch bird. He noticed a bunch of different beaks. So he finally posed a question like, uh, you know, I think these beaks are different for a very specific reason. Right. And I aim to find out why. Yes. He said, what caused the diversification of finches on Galapagos? Ooh. (laughs) 
You should have done that with an accent. <laughs> well, yeah, he would have had a British accent, huh? Yeah. Huh. Unless he was pretending to be someone else. I always think of him as like um, sounding like Hemingway or something. Oh, yeah? Dr- yeah. Drunk and violent? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but he wasn't. He was like the opposite of that. Yeah, well, I saw the, the movie, uh, so I, I picture his voice as uh, the dude that played him, who I can't remember right now. Ed Norton. No. <laughs> I finally saw Birdman, though. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Great movie. I, um, I disagree. Oh, you didn't like it? No. What? Wow. That surprises me. Um, we'll get into that off the air. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, sorry, you just threw me with that. Make an dissension. observation. Yes. He's on Galapagos, and he's like, what the heck's with all these different finches? Right. It's one small island. Why would there be different species of finch? So ask the and, question. And why are they all seeming to survive and coexist so well? What's what make that? Yeah. Then he leads to the question: What's making all of these species of finches so diverse? Right. Or Bill Harris uses um, a pretty good example that's something everyone can understand. Like, what car body shape is the best for air resistance? Like one that's shaped like a box, or one that's shaped like aerodynamic, like a bird. Right. And he carries that out in the next step. Uh, you formulate your hypothesis uh, based on your, you know, foreknowledge and maybe observations. Like, say, so you know what? I think that a car shaped like a bird is probably more aerodynamic than one shaped like a box. Yeah, if you're thinking, if you're the type of person who's sitting around asking questions about aerodynamics, you probably already have some sort of sense that a box is less aerodynamic than a bird. That's right. Boxes rarely fly. Unless they're carried by one of those delightful Amazon delivery drones. <laughs> they don't have those yet, right? They're not going to do that, are they? There's like a pizza delivery drone service. Oh, man. I think. Where you have, no, is it idea. pizza or grilled cheese in New York, <laughs> and you go stand on an X after you order, and it like comes and drops it? That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah? And well, I can't wait to do it. <laughs> I bet they're making a lot of money. That's pretty funny. Um, yet we can't get food to the homeless somehow. Exactly. We can drop a grilled cheese on someone's head. Right. They're like, you homeless guy, get off of that X. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So your hypothesis, I don't think we ever mentioned, is, is typically represented as an if-then statement. Yeah, if you're doing good science, it is. Yeah, like if the car's profile, uh, well, the, the example he uses, if the body's profile related to the amount of air it produces... Uh, which is the more general statement. Yeah, that's like based on a theory. Yeah, and it's going to get more specific. Then the car design like the body of a bird will be more aerodynamic than one like a box. So that's inductive reasoning, starting with a broad statement and going to something narrow. And it's if-then at the same time. Yeah, and now you have a test. You have a question that can be answered. You can figure out a way to answer it. Yeah, and he points out too, this is uh, pretty important that uh, your hypothesis, if it's formulated correctly, means it is testable and it's falsifiable. Which are often one and the same. True. You know? Yeah. And that's, again, we go to the people who say that their their soft sciences aren't real science. They're pseudoscience because a lot of the data that they come up with, a lot of the hypotheses they come up with, aren't falsifiable. They're not testable. Right. That's yeah. a, it's a thing. It's an issue. <laughs> it's a thing. Uh, so next up in the steps, uh, you're going to experiment. And when you experiment, you can't just go in there willy-nilly and do whatever you want. Um, you have to set up specific conditions, uh, and they must be controlled. That's yeah. the key. And you want everything that's supposed to be identical needs to be identical. So basically you have two variables at least. You have an independent variable yes. and you have a dependent variable. And if you're talking about car shape, that is the independent variable in this study. Yeah, that's you're, the one that's manipulated. Exactly. Yeah. It's the one you're controlling. The independent variable is the one you, the researcher, is controlling. So in this case, you're controlling the shape of the car. Right. You have yourself a bird-shaped car mm-hmm. and you have yourself a box-shaped car. So the shape of the car changed because you made it change. Now, when you blast a bunch of air over it during your experiment, what you're measuring is the dependent variable. So you're measuring what happens based on the change that you made. That's right. And you want to study one single variable at a time, basically. Yeah, don't get fancy. 
Just just do good science, step by step, methodical. Uh, you also have to have your control group in any experiment uh, and an experimental group, and the control group is what's going to allow you to compare the test results to that baseline measurement. Yeah, uh, and you need that baseline measurement. So, so like, you no, know, it's not just like chance, basically. Exactly. Like if Pasteur had just done the S-shaped neck and nothing happened, right? He wouldn't have necessarily been able to say that he was right, even though he was right. He needed that control, which was the open flask. Right. Or with the cars, you need two cars, like you said, one bird-shaped and one box-shaped. Right. Or the, maybe in this case, since the bird shape and the box shape both show up in the hypothesis, you'd need a third, like, egg-shaped one or something like that. Ooh, I bet that would be pretty streamlined. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> but the the key, though, is all of those variables have to be, um, all the other variables have to be the same. Like, you have to have them, they have to be the same weight, they have to be painted the same, mm-hmm. uh, the tires, everything, the windows. Uh, one can't have an antenna and the other not. They've all, they've got to be identical other than the one variable. Right, the independent variable that you're, that's the one you want different, everything else you want the same, or else right. it's possible that, oh, well, this one had b- bigger tires, so that right. actually made it more aerodynamic. Yeah, and you're just doing yourself a favor by doing all that stuff. Yeah. You know, you want to rule out everything else but that one variable. Yeah. Uh, after that, you want to analyze your data and, so you can draw your conclusion. And sometimes it's kind of straightforward and easy. Sometimes it takes a lot of work and a lot of various tools yeah, to so draw it out. Let's say you're um, just blasting a, a car in a wind tunnel. Yeah. You're measuring the wind resistance using certain awesome instruments yeah. and that kind of stuff, and you're taking that data. And then afterward, you're going to analyze it. You're going to compare the data that you gathered from the bird-shaped car, the box-shaped car, and then the control, the egg-shaped car. Right. You're going to compare them, and you're going to say, well, the wind resistance was less for the bird-shaped car than the box-shaped car, which means that my hypothesis was correct. Right, and here are all the data points, whereas Louis Pasteur could just say, look at the beakers. Exactly. Don't be an idiot. Yeah. I'm a scientist. That one's got gross stuff. You can see it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But the other thing about science too, Chuck, ideally, is let's say that egg-shaped one turned out, the control group turned out to have better wind resistance than anything. Well, just by virtue of carrying out this experiment correctly, you would have stumbled upon an even better aerodynamic design. That's right. And you would have come up with that little egg-shaped Mercedes SUV Yeah, that was so huge (laughs) like 10 years ago. The Mercedes egg coming to a store near you. So um, that's a big, big part of the scientific method is carrying out an experiment, controlling the variables, Mm -hmm. analyzing the data, and then there's a step that he missed that is very rarely part of a scientific method list. Oh, yeah? That is to share your data. Oh, sure. And this is a huge problem with science right now. Yeah, that article you sent was really eye-opening. Uh, scientific research has changed the world. Now it needs to change itself. Yeah, it's an economist article. It's up on the internet. Yeah, it was kind of scary that uh, it's, I mean, here's some of the data he points out is one rule of thumb among biotech venture capitalists is about half, 50% of published research can't even be replicated. And a biotech firm, Amgen, found that they could reproduce only six of their 53 landmark studies in cancer research. Right. So you can't repeat these things. It's like everyone's fighting for dollars in fame, or maybe not fame, but some are. career advancement. Sure. Such that they're kind of not doing that final step any longer. No, and it's not necessarily just them. It's the other scientists aren't going back and saying, well, let me see if your results are reproducible. People are just taking it on faith. Right. We need another Roger Bacon to come along and be like, dude, we can't just blindly accept that one person carried out this one yeah. study uh-huh. and then just go do clinical trials on it without anybody reproducing it to see if the, the results can be verified independently. Yeah, because... Uh, and this is a good time to mention bias. There is such a thing as bias, and it still happens. Um, a scientist is usually out to prove something or disprove something right. that they want a, a specific result. Like, even if you're super open-minded, you're probably hoping to disprove or prove something one way or the other. 
And your confirmation bias might, you know, even if you don't think you're doing it, you might nudge out some results that don't support your hypothesis. Right. And so you won't make it into that awesome uh, journal. Yeah. Um, which this author points out that journals need to start uh, putting in what he calls uninteresting results and experiments. Right. Or like the stuff that's not sexy. Right. Or studies that failed to show that their hypothesis was correct. Yeah, stuff that's disproved. Those things still need to, well, not even disproved. Well, yeah, I guess it is disproved. But yes, like the guy set out to say like the, a red uh, balloon uh, uses less helium than a silver balloon. Right. And it turns out that, no, they use the same amount of helium. Well, if that study gets published and put out there into the scientific literature on helium and balloons, yeah. then it's going to prevent some other scientists down the road from wasting time, money, and helium, which, as you'll remember, is an increasingly needed commodity, sure. um, by carrying out the same experiment. Yeah. So whether, whether the results are positive or negative or what, they, the study is meant to be shared. And that's the point of the scientific method is to, to reduce bias. Right. And if you follow it all the way through, ideally, and do all of the steps, including share your research, whether it's happy or sad, then yeah. science benefits, the world benefits. And by not doing that, the world does not benefit. Yeah, he points out that uh, these days only 14% of published papers are uh, quote-unquote negative results, and it used to be like 30% or more. Um, and he says because a lot of it has to do with this sort of, uh, you know, getting in these journals and you're the rock star scientist mm -hmm. and this study is super sexy. Right. Like if they kind of quit going that route and made it what it should be, then uh, research dollars would be better spent and uh, people could, you know, he said the peer-reviewed thing isn't even all it's cracked up to be I anymore. know. The, he mentions a study from a medical journal that gave a bunch of peer reviewers some stuff with deliberate errors inserted into the research, into yeah. the studies. And even when they were told that they were being tested to find this, they still missed a lot of it. Yeah. So, yeah, the science needs to kind of reevaluate the way it's carrying out science. It's not science, the problem... It's, isn't science itself. The problem isn't the scientific method. It's the way that it's being used or not followed through. And a lot of it has to do with academia and the people funding science. Yeah, and he said, you know, these days there's up 7 million researchers. And back in the day, even in like the 1950s, there were like a few thousand maybe. Right. So there's just a lot of career competition. He calls it careerism. And uh, so you fake a result or two or you just nudge out some results that don't support your hypothesis. Yeah. You want the bigger paycheck or the fame or notoriety, and all of a sudden, science is not science. Yeah. You know? It's pseudoscience. Exactly. And speaking of pseudoscience, I think we've reached the point where um, we should talk about the limitations of the scientific method. Because it does have its limits, right? Yeah. Like, the way that the scientific method is set up, especially if you go through, um, if you include falsification, which most scientists now say is a thing. Like sure. falsifiability of your hypothesis means that you have a real scientific hypothesis there. Yeah. If it can be disproven by some observation or some measurement or whatever, then it's falsifiable. And if it's not falsifiable, then it's not really science. So the thing is, for something to be falsifiable, and it was actually a philosopher that came up with the concept of falsification, a guy named Karl Popper in the 1930s. Yeah. And he was the one that said, like, You're, you have to be able to falsify something for it to be disproven or supported. Right. And if not, then it's pseudoscience. Right. Well, part and parcel of that is that what you're saying has to be able to be detected empirically. There's some way that it has to, the presence of it has to be measured or inferred. Right. And so a lot of people say, well, then with the scientific method, it reaches its, the, the limits of its current usefulness when it tries to explain the supernatural. Right. When somebody says like... Ghosts are real. Exactly. You can't prove that. Well, you also can't disprove it either. Right. Right. And so if you are a scientist who says uh, because the scientific method can't prove or disprove the existence of ghosts or God. Yeah. There is no such thing as ghosts or God. You're making a, a leap of faith just as much as the same person who says science can't prove or disprove the existence of ghosts or God. Therefore, gods and ghosts are real. Right. 
it, they're both leaps of faith. And that really the most scientific approach to the existence of the supernatural, whether it is ghost or God, is that we simply don't know and that we cannot know scientifically. And, but that doesn't mean that it does exist or doesn't exist. Right. And that saying that science shows that it does or doesn't exist is by, by definition the opposite of what science shows. Yeah. Science shows neither. It's not capable of showing or showing that something doesn't exist. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, the other place where science can get corrupted is when it blurs the lines or when people blur the lines between uh, moral judgments and science, uh, value judgments. Yeah. Like you can study global warming, you can study cause and effect, you can report data. But when you make that second leap to say, and this is a scientist, I mean, someone can come along and say global warming is bad, shouldn't drive your SUV. That's fine. But a scientist can't do a study and say that because that's uh, that's a value judgment and that's where science can get corrupted pretty much. Like right. You can, you can study global warming and results till the cows come home, but you can't assert that if you use this light bulb, you're a bad person. Right, or um, ocean acidification is bad. It's not good for humans, but if you're a jellyfish, it's awesome. Right. You know? So, yeah. yes. And again, you made a great point. It's not science. It's people using science to make value judgments. Yeah. So, it, ultimately, the scientific method, although it does have its limitations in that it needs empirical data yeah. uh, to prove or disprove something, it, it, it's, not, it's not flawed. That's not a flaw. That's a limitation. Yeah. And it's, it's when it's misused, then it, its results become flawed or skewed. And that's the people doing it, man, not science. That's right. It's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Man, this is a good one. I thought so too, man. Way to start out with a bang. Boom. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to know more about the scientific method, uh, check out that article on The Economist. Check out Explorables. Uh, and then, of course, check out the scientific method in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, that's right. But quickly, before listener mail, uh, we get asked by listeners all the time, what can we do? Since you have a free podcast, we can't pay for it. Mm -hmm. What can we do to help you guys? Yeah. And one thing you can do that we would appreciate is uh, go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for us. Yeah. That it, makes it a be so nice. big, big difference in keeping us up there in the rankings, which means more people find stuff you should know after they listen to Serial. They'll just say, well, geez, there's other podcasts in the world. <laughs> what is this <laughs> podcast? So ratings and reviews really help us out, and it doesn't cost you anything but a few minutes. Um, be honest. We're not saying go leave us some great review, but uh, go leave us a great review. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. Uh, and tell, tell one person about stuff you should know. We would appreciate that, too. Turn somebody onto the show, mm -hmm. and um, that's it. That's our version of a pledge drive. They, wow. We do that, what, once every three years yeah, now? Yeah, not, not very yeah. obnoxious. And it, it lasts 40 seconds. All right, so on to listener mail. This is from my sister-in-law, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is some nepotism. Yeah, Jenny, uh, Jenny Bryant. She uh, Makes sense. mentioned in the homeschool episode, homeschooled her kids mm -hmm. for a little while, and she sort of corrected me. Uh, love the homeschooling episode, guys. One very big trend these days in the homeschooling community is what uh, Abby, my niece, does which is hybrid homeschooling. So two to three days a week, she is at school, and then the rest of the time, she's, she's at home. She's a plant. <laughs> she's not a plant. Uh, the rest of the time, she's at home. So she says it's a great option with curriculum provided and new topics taught at school and then worked out at home. Uh, many of these schools are accredited making getting into college, uh, including Ivy League schools, hassle-free. Nice. And uh, Abby's school has sports teams, uh, homecoming. Abby's actually an excellent volleyball player. Yeah. Uh, beta club, newspaper staff, all the good stuff. Uh, the flexibility is great for families, and we are huge fans of how the hybrid approach prepares students for college by allowing them time outside of class to manage their work and life schedules. So uh, that's from Jenny. Nice. It's actually Jenny. via text. Oh, really? Our first listener mail via text. How did you print that out? Did you retype it and print it? No, dude. Are you serious? You can print from text? No, you just... Like copy pasted to an email. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that method. How in the world did you print a text? <laughs> did you do that with your thoughts? 
I have a niece who is uh, excellent at volleyball, too. Oh, yeah? How yeah, old is we she? we should get them together. Jeez, I don't know. 10, 11, 12, okay. something like that. Abby just turned 13, so they're... Oh, maybe they face off against one another. Yeah. Is she in Atlanta? Yeah, she's up in Canton. You never know. Where's Abby? She's in Roswell, but they, I think with volleyball, oh, they yeah. kind of have play all over the Wouldn't state. Wouldn't that be bizarre if they play each other? Yeah, we'll just see each other at a match one day <laughs> right. on opposite sides of the court with <laughs> the, our arms folded. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what else? I got nothing else. Well, like Chuck said, go leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can email us. Do we still do that? Yeah, you can't text me. <laughs> at uh, StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. <laughs> Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.